exposition here, and we're going to read verses 6 through 12. Verse 6. I have manifested your name to the people who you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me. And they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them, and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you've given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours. And yours are mine, and I'm glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world. And I am coming to you, Holy Father. Keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you've given me. I've guarded them, and not one of them has been lost, except the son of destruction, that the scriptures might be fulfilled. We sing in the old hymn, and honestly, I will confess, I think this is my favorite hymn. For me it was in the garden. He prayed, not my will, but thine. He had no tears for his own griefs, but sweat drops of blood for mine. It highlights what is the dominant feature from this point forward throughout the rest of Jesus' prayer. Namely, that this is a prayer on behalf of his people. He says, I, in verse 9, I am praying for them. I'm praying for them. He again repeats that down in verse 19, and he says, And for their sake I consecrate myself. Let me remind you that this prayer, ushered, offered by the Lord Jesus Christ to his Father, was an intercession. An intercession is a prayer made on behalf of someone else. And Jesus here, after giving his brief introduction from verse 1 through 5, enters into the main subject of his prayer. Remember with me the, the, the point in the life of Jesus. He is not at the beginning of his ministry. He's at the end. He's not 
at the season and the hour of his greatest triumph, outwardly speaking, he's at the season and the hour of his greatest trial. And yet we find that his sufferings do not distract him from what is truly on his heart. His people. Jesus prays for those who are his. This will dominate the focus and the subject of this prayer throughout the rest of the passage. And you might divide it up into two sections. Jesus first prays for the apostles and those who are his current followers. And then in a heart edifying and mesmerizing emphasis, he changes his tone in verse 20 and then focuses on every Christian past present, future. Jesus prays for those of us who are in this very room that are Christ's. You were on his mind in the Garden of Gethsemane. And he prays for you. So what we're looking at is an intercession. For me it was in the Garden he prayed. But know with me, brothers and sisters, just to remind you that this was not merely an intercession, but it was a, a prayer that was a consecration of his purpose. What do I mean by that? It's a consecration, meaning a dedication or, or, or pledging himself to a particular purpose. You, if you're a Christian of any worth or count, you know this. You sit down at the table most times and you pray and you offer thanks to God and you dedicate this meal to the Lord. You say, Lord, we receive our thanks for this and take this meal and use it for giving me strength and us giving you glory. Something of that nature. When you enter into a new venture, if God blesses you with a new house or a new car, you might sit aside and say, Lord, thank you for this vehicle. Let it be used for your name. This is what Jesus is doing here. He's reflecting back on the purpose for which God the Father sent him into the earth. And again, he's not offering new information. He's not praying new details to God the Father. But he is confirming and consecrating himself to the very reason why he's here. And so this is an extremely important passage. It offers great clarity for all of us who are saved today because it dives deeply into the heart and the mind of Christ and to his purposes for why he was here. This prayer highlights the inner working and the purpose of God for all ages. You say, what is God doing in the earth? Why, what is going on? Why, is, why are things the way they are? And what's, what's, what is God at work? What's he doing? John 17 gives us a glimpse of this, brothers and sisters. It shows us that the triune God, the thrice holy God, who sits upon the throne of heaven is not passively observing and watching how things are falling out. Instead, he's at work. And he's at work to save his people. We talked about this last time, but we're going to dive into it again because it just it's over and over and over again. As we walk verse by verse through this text, we are going to see that Christ's work in this earth is His people. It's His church. And Christ, as we've already seen in verses 1 through 5, is seeking to bring glory to God the Father. How? He said in verse 4, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. What was that work? What was the, the mission to bring glory to God? It's the salvation of his people. 
Christ is praying here for the complete salvation and the preservation of all of God's people, God's elect people. In our, ver- our text today, verses 6 through 12, I'm centering in on verse number 11. Everything in verse 6 through 12 is qualifiers and modifiers. He, he speaks descriptively about uh, who these people are he's praying for. He defines in verses 6 through 10 who it is he's praying for. And then finally in verse 11, he gets to the actual petition. What it is he's praying for. Father, Holy Father, keep them in your name. That's the prayer. That's the petition. Holy Father, keep them in your name. But everything else is he's defining who it is he's praying for. And so I'm following those two points as my outline this morning. If you're taking notes, point number one, those for whom Christ prays for. And point number two, the petition or the request he makes for them. Are you with me this morning? Say amen. Let's consider what the word says. Who is Christ praying for? We've already read the text, but let me just point you to a few features coming out over verses 6 through 10. He speaks about a definite group of people, an isolated class of individuals. He, call, he calls them in verse 6, and it's the most prevalent title he gives of them, the people whom you have given me. The people whom you gave me out of the world, he says in verse 6. And they are the particular object and subject of his prayer all the way throughout. Notice with me, let's just briefly survey the verses here to catch this. Yours, they were, talking about that group of people, and they have kept your word. Verse 7, they know that everything that you have given me is from you. Verse 8, I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them. Again, in the bottom of the verse, they have believed I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you gave me out of the world. All mine are yours, and yours are mine. And I'm glorified in them. Jesus here, over and over again, expresses to the Father those who are the object of his heart's focus and concern. And they are his people. These men are the object of Christ's focus and attention. And, they, and we can say properly, these are the apostles, the twelve, or the eleven now, because Judas is gone. And they are the focus of Christ's intimate prayers. And yet we'll see, brothers and sisters, as we walk through this passage, by extension, Jesus is praying for all believers are included in this prayer. And so I'm going to treat it as such, and you take my word for it. In a couple of weeks, I'll prove it to you as we get through the text. But take my word for it for now. I think I'm good for that. I'll, I'll pay you back. All believers are included when Jesus prays this. And so, brothers and sisters, this highlights for us this morning the definite purpose of God and His plan from eternity. 
It shows us that his plan, strictly speaking, is limited in its scope. Not all people are going to be saved, and not all people were on the mind and the heart of Christ as he prayed to the Father. Not everybody will know the blessings of eternal life. Not everybody will be with God in heaven. But only those who have been elected to be will be. He says, I am not praying for the world. Get that. I'm not praying for the world. And I know that maybe for many of you, this, this stretches your mind today. And it did last week when I talked about this subject. And I, I'm fully acquainted with what, how difficult sometimes this truth and this subject can be. But brothers and sisters, let me, just, let me just encourage you today. Let your heart sink in the Word. Reject your feelings today and settle your mind on what the text says and submit yourself to what the Scripture says. Because there's great treasure for you this morning. We're not meant to think that when Christ was hanging on the cross, he was sitting there with, with his mind and his heart and his purposes on nobody specifically, but everybody generally. That was not his purpose. Christ is not hanging on the cross thinking, oh, I hope that in result of this, somebody will come to me. No, no. As the Old Testament illustration says, our names were graven in his hands. As Christ hung on that cross, He had your name, those of you who are saved, specifically come to mind. And He was thinking of you. Christ did not indiscriminately cast His grace upon all the world to think in the hopes that maybe somebody would come to be saved. He had a particular people in mind. Those who were given to Him by the Father. And it was for them He prayed, and it was for them he died. To illustrate this, think with me about a few examples. You are likely familiar with the story of Noah in the ark. God had it it in his mind both to judge but to deliver humanity. Judge humanity for their sin. They were wickedness but to deliver them. And we know the story, Noah built an ark to the saving of his household. Now, this may be some speculation, I fully admit, but I think it's consistent with the revelation of Scripture. Could we not suppose that if there were men in that day who were repenting and confessing of their sin and turning to to God, would he have not made room for them in the ark? Can we all agree on that? Say amen. Would God have judged men who had actually owned up and recognized their sinful state and sought Him in true penitence of heart? By all means, everything in the Scriptures would teach us that at every period of time, if men truly sought the Lord, He would be found of them. And we're told that Noah was a preacher of righteousness. For a hundred years as he built that ark, he preached the righteousness of the judgment to come, and there was within that an opportunity for every man to be saved. But let me ask you a question. Did Noah build an ark for every man? Noah built an ark for his household. And therein we have an illustration. Though the gospel goes out to all men, though every man is invited to come to be saved, God is building an ark for his people. And he'll save them.
We're told in the Old Testament, as, I, as excuse me, Elijah complains to God about his, his isolation and his, his deplorable state and being the only one left of all the prophets of Israel. And God's reply to him was, I have reserved for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed to me. In every generation and every age, God has been about the purpose of saving his own elect people. He says, I have manifested your name to the people you have gave me out of the world. Now, real quickly, in John's gospel, we have already noted who these people are. It's told us in chapter 6, we're told that those who have been given to the Father will come to Christ, and they will not be cast out. And we're told in John chapter 6 that those who have been given by the Father to Christ, Christ will not lose any of them, but raise them up on the last day to eternal life. And in verse 644, we're told that they come to God as a result, come to Christ as a result of the inner working of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit draws them savingly to Christ, and they are saved. And we're again in John 10 affirmed that these people will not be snatched out of the Father's hand. If you're looking for a term to call these people, we term them the elect. The people of God who have been chosen before the foundation of the world to be Christ's. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 4 says it this way, Even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. That's when it happened. That's when this choice was made. Before the foundation of the world. That we should be holy and blameless before Him. So what does that teach us? Well, it shows us that those whom God the Father owned were chosen before the foundation of the world. That's before you ever did anything. That God did not take a person into account when He made His choice of them. God didn't look and say... Boy, that person's got some giftings. They're a singer. He's a preacher. He's got a good intellect. Boy, he's just humble. Boy, he's just sweet. I think I want that one. No, no. He did it before the foundation of the world. Before you were ever known, before you were ever born or did good or evil, God set his choice on his people to make us holy and blameless before him. And it was his love predestinating us, he says, for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. This is the doc, what we call the doctrine of election. I manif- those whom you gave me out of the world. I like the way one group of divines said it. They said it this way. Election is the unchangeable purpose of God whereby before the foundation of the world he hath out of mere grace according to his own good pleasure, chosen from the human race, all of which had fallen through their own fault from the primitive state of sinlessness into sin and destruction, he has chosen a certain number of persons to redemption in Christ. Those whom you gave me out of the world. Brothers and sisters, let me just remind you for the hundredth time that this is not the discouragement for any of us to neglect our gospel duties. Instead, it encourages us to keep preaching. You don't want to know how I can keep preaching? 
I can keep preaching because in spite of how sleepy some of you guys are sometimes, and in spite of how negligent you might be and, and, and heeding the words that I say and obeying the truths of scriptures, and in spite of seasons where nobody comes to salvation, I can keep preaching because the truth of God's sovereign election means that we will not fail. You can have hope today. You can go and you can share the gospel and sow the word of God indiscriminately all across Selkirk, Manitoba and be hopeful. I didn't just waste my time. You can go with us in the month of March when we do some evangelism and we can knock on doors and you can try to invite people to church and tell them about Christ and we can go home even if we were rejected by every household saying, boy, that was successful. Why? Because Christ is going to have his people. Acts chapter 18 reminds us of this when it, God is speaking to the Apostle Paul and he's encouraging him about the opposition he's facing. And he says, he says, go on preaching. He says, for I am with you and no one will attack you to harm you. Listen, for I have many people in this city. They weren't saved yet. And Jesus says, I have some people here. So keep going on. 2 Timothy 2.10 says, Paul says, I endure everything for the sake of the elect. What does that mean? For the sake of those whom God has chosen, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. So Paul could, with this doctrine in mind, endure whatever difficulties come in the way of gospel ministry. I want you to note with me, secondly, about this group of people. And I'm taking it kind of uh, topically here because it's hard to outline this passage. But note with me what he says about them. Jesus takes personal possession of them. He says in verse 6, Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Verse 10, he says, All mine are yours, and yours are mine. Jesus specifically and, and exclusively looks from eternity past at all of those who are his chosen people, and he says, Mine. Those are mine. It reminds us of what Peter says in 1 Peter 2. He says, You are a chosen race. A chosen race. You are a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. How did they become the possession of Christ? Well, according to this text, God gave them to him. He says, yours they were. How? Well, that's election. God in eternity past chose them to be his out of his sheer grace. Nothing due to themselves. He chose them. And then he gave them to Christ. Why? Because he would be their mediator and their representative. You see, before the time began, we call this the, the uh, God's purpose of grace. Before the world began, God the Father knew that knowing that mankind would fall, purposed to save them. But he purposed to save them by his son, Jesus And in eternity past, God the Father and God the Son came to an agreement. And they said to one another, we're going to have for us a people. 
We're going to save them by the works of the Son. This is my plan as God the Father, and you're going to carry it out as God the Son. And so God the Father entrusted to God the Son the souls of all of those who were His chosen people. And it was upon His shoulders He bore their iniquities and their trespasses and the responsibility for their welfare. And Christ took them as His responsibility. And He went to the cross for them, bearing their sins and owning them. This reminds us, brothers and sisters, that though we as God's people are not better than anyone else, we're not any more deserving of God's grace than anyone else. In eternity past, God decreed to give all of His people to Christ. We will be saved by Him, and He will effectually call us to, and draw us through to His communion by His Word and His Spirit, and He will bestow on them and us true faith. God gave us the cross. Christ owns His people. They're His possession. And when He went to the cross, He took full ownership for them. He bore the sins of many, it says. Thirdly, before we move on, he has per, his, we see how his purposes are revealed to them. He said in verse 6, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. What is he talking about here? He's talking about the full scope of his teaching and preaching ministry. I manifested your name to the people. Just real quickly here, let me remind you of a couple of verses we've already read. John 1.18 says, No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's right side, has, He has made Him known. That was speaking of Jesus and a summary of His entire ministry recorded for, in the Gospel of John. Jesus made God the Father known. And again, if you remember in John 14... Jesus speaking with Philip, when he said, show us the Father, he says, Philip, how can you say, show us the Father? If any man has seen me, he has seen the Father. And thereby, brothers and sisters, we see what he means. When he says, I have manifested your name to the people whom you've given me, he's talking about the revealing work of Christ in his ministry on this earth. Through his teaching and through his miracles, Jesus Christ, plainly preached and revealed who God the Father was. And he says in verse, at the end of verse 6, And they have kept your word. It's the words of Christ. Verse 8, I have given them your words that you gave me. And so it is through the preaching of the word of Christ, his teaching and his miracles, that Christ revealed himself to his people. Now note with me how this works. See what's going on here. Nowhere along the way in the Gospel of John, or very few places, did Jesus go about in his sermon saying, Now here's what I'm, I'm about to preach this indiscriminately to every single one of you, but I actually mean it for a few of you. He didn't go about his business of saying that, but that's exactly what was happening. It's as if it, it's, it's like it says in Luke chapter 8, he says, If any man has ears to hear, let him hear. 
Jesus went about through his preaching and his teaching ministry, teaching indiscriminately to anyone who would hear the gospel of the kingdom of God. But underneath the surface and going on, going on secret to the eyes of men, Christ was teaching and calling out his elect. And brothers and sisters, that's exactly what happens today in any faithful and local New Testament church. The gospel is preached indiscriminately. The call goes out. Whosoever will, let him come. But secretly, the purposes of God are being unfolded because every single one of them who come, comes. Because God chose them before the foundation of the world. Men don't come freely of their own will. Men don't come on their own volition because we're all fallen in sin and all bent to loving sin in our own way, and our own path. And only by God's grace do we come. And so God, by His sovereign electing grace, reveals His Son. It's like the clouds. You and I do not decide on which day and in which season the sun shines on us. God, in His, His eternal decrees, appoints the days so that the weather does exactly as He wishes. And some days the clouds cover up the sun, and other days the rays shine on us in their full glory. And likewise, brothers and sisters, you and I cannot control where the Spirit blows, who He opens up their eyes to, or who comes to see the gospel. God does. We preach the gospel. We minister to whoever will listen to us. But God, by His sovereign grace and His Spirit, opens the eyes of whom He will. And they come to see and believe. Matthew eleven twenty seven 27 makes this very clear. All things have been handed over to me by my Father. And no one knows the Son except the Father. Listen. And no one knows the Father except the Son. And anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. The Son chose to reveal Him. The reason you are saved today, brothers and sisters, is because God, by His sheer grace, decided to remove the clouds of sin and stain of your mind and your will and your heart and to humble you by God's grace and open up your eyes to see, I need Christ. Let me have Jesus. Where did that come from? Where did that desire come from? Did that that come from the depths of your fallen soul? No, that came from God's grace. His revealing work of the Holy Spirit opened your eyes to see. And you didn't do anything to earn Him doing that. You didn't sit back and God didn't look at you and say, well, He's finally got His act together. Now I'll start giving Him some light. No, no, no. He gave it to you in spite of you. God revealed Himself to His apostles. I've manifested your name to the people. And so it is with every single person you saved. If you're here today and you're saved, you should say, thank you, Lord. You didn't have to. God was constrained not one bit to save you. He didn't owe you anything. But he did. Now, I know the common objections to this truth and the knee-jerk reaction of any thinking person is often, well, how can God do that for some people and not everyone? Why does, can God choose who He's going to save and leave the rest of mankind in their sin? Is that not unfair? 
Well, I don't have time to answer all of the details of that, but let me just point you to one quick clarification. It is not unfair of God to give mercy to some and leave others in their sin. Fairness is equatable with justice. To be fair means to be just and right. And if God's going to give justice to mankind, that means he's got to punish all of us and just give us all hell. And that's what we deserve. But if God in his mercy decides that I'm going to save some, that's grace. And he's free to choose to give it to whomever he wants. As he says in Romans 9, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. I will give it to who I want to, he says. And the rest I'll leave in their sin. You see, if God gave us today what we deserved, we'd all be dead in hell. And he owes no man salvation. But he chooses freely of his own good pleasure and will, sovereign and wise and full of love, gives it to those whom he chooses. Two things about this and we'll move on. First off, this teaches you today, this doctrine of God's sovereign election. If you're here today and you're listening to me and you're not saved, you have never been born again by the Spirit of God, you are this very moment presuming on the goodness and graciousness of God. You probably think, one day I'll get right with the Lord. One day I'll turn back to Christ and I'll finally give Him a chance and I'll come to Him one day. But you're not in charge of this thing. You can't just up and decide one day you're going to just do what you can't do. It's not in your hands. The doctrine of election teaches you that if you're going to be saved, God must do something. And you are at His disposal, and you are at His mercy. And you are this very moment offending Him by your refusing to come. And you are alienating yourself. The doctrine of election teaches you not to presume on the goodness of God. It humbles you. Mankind today and and, and Christianity at large, even good Christians, have been sold a pack of lies. We think God has done His part, now I must do my part, and I can do that when I get ready. No, you can't. You need God. And this day, if you are hardening your heart, turn around. Do not... Look at this doctrine and think, well, well God's going to do what He wants, so I'm just going to go ha- about my merry way. Oh, you harden yourself. You expose your own true heart. For brothers and sisters, for all of us who have been saved, this teaches us to whom we are to give credit and glory. We don't say, boy, good job, when somebody comes to faith in Jesus. We don't give accolades and praise like that because it's misplaced. We don't say, boy, I'm so proud of you, as if they have done something to accomplish. No, we say glory to God. Look at what Christ has done. Every time somebody goes into the baptistry waters, we don't say, oh, when good on you. We say praise the Lord because God did something. Amen? So God in His purpose reveals His Son to His people. He manifests His name to His people. But how do we know whom God has given to the Son? You may be sitting here today, maybe you're lost, and you say, well, how do I know I'm elect? How, what, is that me? I mean, is that, does that cast me out? Am I one of those whom God will redeem? 
Well, the scripture puts us another truth side by side here, and that's human responsibility. Verse 6, it highlights it, and then again in verse 8, it says, Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and look, and, and I just brought them to wherever they are. No, he, he talks about their response. And they have kept your word. They kept your word. Verse 8, he says it again. I have get, for I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them, and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. So we know those whom God the Father has chosen to eternal life, those who are the elect, by their response to the gospel. It's like Charles Spurgeon said in his pithy way. He says, if God had put a stamp on the back of all of his elect so we could know who were God's chosen people, he says, we'd go all about around London lifting up coattails and looking on the backsides of individuals to see who were God's chosen people. But he said he didn't do that. He says, God's elect are known by the response to the gospel. They believe. They receive the truth of God's word and they keep it. That is those who are Christ's. He says of the apostles that they, let me look at the three words he uses, they have kept. That word there means to accept it by faith, obey it, and to stand guard over it. But notice with me the irony here. Jesus has just prayed for these 11 individuals, or just mentioned to these 11 individuals that they were about to betray him. He says, the hour is coming, verse 32, when you will be scattered. You're going to abandon me. You're going to forsake me. And yet when he prays to them, to God the Father, he does not complain about their errors and their grievances. He says, they have kept your word. Brothers and sisters, look at how Christ intercedes for you. He is not as the great accuser standing before God the Father accounting for all of your sins, but he has washed them away in his blood, and now he stands before the Father and says, they've kept your word, they've followed me. However imperfectly you may be as a Christian today, and however faulty you may be, and and full of sin you may be, God the Father, through Christ, owns you, has taken possession of you, and he pleads to you for, for, for your case. He says, they have kept your word. This means, brothers and sisters, you should not be discouraged if you're not a perfect Christian. You're not somebody who's arrived yet. No, that's true. But He still owns you. He still intercedes for you. If you, by faith, accept the teachings of the Scriptures, if you seek to obey it as a pattern of your life, and if you desire to follow Christ, Christ doesn't say, boy, look at that failure. Look at that person who just can't get anything right. He says, no, they've kept my word. Do you know some of the people he's talking about? This is Peter we're talking about. The man who stuck his foot in his mouth some more times than not. He says, Lord, they've kept it. Why? Because in God's will and in God's providence, the the thing that he desires most of all from everybody else is your faith in Christ. He He is glorified when you put your trust in Christ and seek to follow him. You say, well, I hadn't done that well. Join the club. But you're following. You're seeking. You're faithing. He says, Father, these are yours. He says, they have received me. They received the words of God. So a true Christian is known by their response to the word of God. Someone 
falsely claims that they're gods, they're part of God's people, and that every generation has had them, and yet they reject, they rebel, they refuse the correction and the instruction of God's Word. They do not receive it. They give plain evidence they're not gods. God's people know His voice. His sheep hear His voice and follow Him. They believed. They guard over His Word and believe it. That's how we know who are the, who are the elect. They trust the Word of God. They follow Christ. Secondly and finally this morning, let me point you to verse number 11 and 12. The request He makes for them. We've seen who it is that Jesus prays for. Now let's see who he, what He prays for them. He says, I'm no longer in the world, but they are in the world. And I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me. He says, Father, keep them. One commentator said it this way. He is asking the Father to stand guard over them. It's like a guard who stands at the prison cell and watches over to make sure that there is no loss of anyone. And I'm glad to tell you this morning, brothers and sisters, Jesus is not like the guards at Christ's tomb or the guard who sat watch over Paul and Silas in the prison jail, having fallen asleep and unknown to him, the doors are open and the loss of everything is at hand. God is a good guard. He does not sleep or slumber, and he does not lose any of those who are entrusted to him. He says here, keep those in your name. This is the preservation of God, of his people. And look quickly, let me give you three reasons why he prays this. First off, he prays this because he knows if it was left up to them alone, they would not be kept They will all abandon him very soon. Their faith is weak. Their comprehension of what God is doing in the earth is is limited. And they are often prone to pride and sinful indulgence. They were were this very night arguing with one another about who was going to be the greatest in the kingdom. So Christ does not leave it up to themselves. God does not leave the final outcome of His people to themselves. He prays for them. And He says, Father, You keep them. Aren't you glad today that not one iota of your salvation depends solely on you? or any? It doesn't rest on your ability to, to gain yourself and keep yourself. God, the Father Himself, is keeping you. Let's rest. There are many foes outside of the Christian church. Therefore, Christ prays for them. He says, they are in the world. Keep them in your name. Satan, his minions, and this world system seeks to extinguish and to to stamp out the faith of God's elect. That That is the purpose behind the world system. If through persecution or through deception or temptation, it's like Satan has a fire extinguisher and he desires to stamp out any evidence of true faith in Christ. But he cannot. Why? Because God is keeping them. Thirdly, he does this because God's glory is on the line. You see, God's glory is at stake here. And if God were to let any single Christian fail, he would lose glory. 
That's why he says in John 10, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Why does he do this? He does this through the means of the word. Jesus said in verse 12, While I was with them, I kept them. Through his teaching ministry, Jesus was keeping his people. And through the ministry of this church, the aim of the ministry of any gospel-preaching church is to be the avenue through which God keeps his people. Through the clear preaching of his word, through the teaching of God's word, God has been keeping you this morning. God has been preserving you and keeping you from error, exposing the faults of your heart and exposing the, the, the ways in which you're drifting from Him and drawing you back to Himself week in and week out through the influence of God's Word. He's keeping you by faith so that not one will be lost. Now, the end of this is so that we will be one. He says in verse 11, that they may be one even as we are one. This is the unity. We're going to talk about this later, but just quickly here. The unit, this is the goal of Christ preserving His people so that they're one. One in faith, one in purpose, one in goal, and one, and, and one in Christ. This oneness is only possible through the power of God. If God did not do this, this kind of unity would only be possible. And it reminds us, brothers and sisters, of the kind of unity that Christ has called us as a local church to. You see, brothers and sisters, if people could look at Grace Baptist Church and say, well, I fully understand why those people associate with one another. They're there because they're all alike. They all think alike. They all have the same preferences. They all go to the same stores. They all shop at Costco. They all wear the same shoes. They all like the same drinks. They're just, they're just all alike. And so it's no wonder that they like to go to church together because they're just all just one big group, one big person. You see, if that's the kind of unity, that's the kind of unity even a fleshly fallen man can have with those around him. But that's not the unity of the church. The unity of the church is expressed when while we don't have everything in agreement, while we are from different cultures and different perspectives, and I like different food, and I, I like different things, and you know my personality is different than yours, and, and you have different per- perspectives and preferences, we live together and in harmony and love because of what Christ has done in us. You see, when a church grasps hold of the gospel and holds to the truths of Christ over and above everything else, then it pictures to the world how in the world do those people stay together. God must be doing something in their midst. You see, brothers and sisters, if we all love each other and serve Christ together in spite of our differences... It shows to the world that we are God's and that God is at work in us. And only God can do that. See, here's the thing, brothers and sisters. As your pastor, I'm, I'm deeply concerned to build this church not on preferences. We're not going to argue so much about music style and colors of the tapestry and, and, and all these different things, these little preferences that we could be intimately concerned with because ultimately those aren't the main thing. You see, as a church, our responsibility in my church as a pastor is to keep us all with the main thing and the main thing. 
so that together we can give glory and honor and praise to God. And it reminds you, brothers and sisters, as members of this church and visitors, you at the, in the course of your life and your time in this church are going to have to learn to be mature in godliness, to get over little grievances and petty differences, and instead latch hold of the glory of God. This is about the glory of God. We have an opportunity to bring glory to God in Selkirk. What does, it, what does it matter, that little thing? Half of the things that churches split over, fight over, have difficulties over, in the grand scheme of things, don't matter. And the, and the root of it all is that we've forgotten the glory of God. And so you may be here today, and the Lord may be exposing Aspects of your own thinking, your own mind. You have made an idol of aspects and preferences when you ought to just say, well, I don't really have to have those. Because, you know, I, I would prefer the music to be different. There are times when I would like this to be that way, or this teacher, I wish he should have done that, or I wish, I, I wish this small group leader would have said that, I wish the preacher would have a better, better capture of the English language. He talks too much like a southerner. I mean, all these thousands of things we could latch on to and say, boy, if that would happen, if, if, if that would happen, the boy, our church would just be so great. No, 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 you've lost sight. This is about the glory of God. And Christ prays to the Father. He says, Father, he says, I'm praying that you keep them, preserve them in faith, latching on to you so that they can be one. I may not understand you. I may not even like everything you like. But you can't stop me from loving you. And you can't stop me from overlooking your faults and keeping on serving God with you. And if every person in a local church has that mindset, they reflect the goodness of God. And they testify to the world something is going on there. All God's people said. I want to ask our ushers, ask our ushers to come forward, please. And we're going to uh, prepare for our time of communion. Before I do, let me just remind you that the, the communion table is open to all of those who have been baptized as a believer and are a, a Christian, saved by the grace of God. If you're fellowshipping in a local church, an evangelical church, we would offer this to you. But if you're not, if you're resisting at any one point in these ways, we would ask that you let the elements pass you by.